Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us in our daily lives that Christ has, this inalterable fact of Easter, that Christ has risen? What does that mean for our daily lives? What does it mean for the world? What, what is Christianity for? Not what is it against, what's it for? What's the purpose of all of this? Well, the inalterable fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means that everything sad is coming untrue. Through the cross and the resurrection, God has defeated evil. And he's opened the door to new creation. And God asks us to respond. See, there's an Easter fact and there's an Easter response. God asks us to respond to Easter, to respond to the Easter fact in two ways. One, by believing that this is true, that Jesus is the Messiah. And because he is the Messiah, because he died and rose from the dead as the Messiah, because of that, everything sad, everything that has ever been sad, every sadness in your life will come untrue. That's the first response, to believe it. And the second response is to join with God in implementing the victory of Easter. To join him in making everything sad come untrue. You see, Christianity is for the life of the world. God is calling us to join him in his Easter work. And this morning, we're dealing with how that applies to the nature of work, your job. Your vocation, your occupation. How does our daily work, students, every time I say that word work, you need to slot in student. That's your job. That is your full-time employment. All right? That is your work. Homemakers, that is your work. Grandparents who've retired. Grandparenting, retiring. You've got to work. So you slot that in there. How does our work fit into God's Easter work. That's the subject of this morning's sermon. Now, a lot of us tend to think of work as some sort of punishment. See, we haven't grown out of the eight-year-old boy who gets in trouble and is assigned extra chores. So we associate, which is a legitimate form of discipline, but you should grow up to see it, have a thicker view of work than that. We'll see this morning that work is not a punishment, and it's not an assignment by God in, in, because of the fall. It's a gift. It's a calling. Now let's get started. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Let's get started. The first part of the sermon, I'm going to lay out three basic characteristics of work from a Christian perspective. Three characteristics of work. That'll be the first part of the sermon. Then the second half, the second part of the sermon, I'll offer three practical ways that the Christian view of work fleshes itself out in, in, in the way you go to work tomorrow. In other words, how to work like a Christian. Okay? So the first part, what is work from a Christian perspective? And number one, we are made for work. That's the first characteristic of work when we look at it from a Christian perspective. In the very beginning of the Christian scriptures, Genesis 1.28, right at the beginning of the Bible, right after making humans, God says to humans, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. We are responsible as humans to exercise our powers, our abilities, how? Through work. That's what it will take to create and to cultivate and to develop this world that we find in front of us. 
work. Take the world as you find it and make something of it. And then in the very next chapter of the Bible, kind of a telling of the same story, the story of creation from a different angle. In the very next account of creation, Genesis chapter 2, we see that God takes humans, takes man, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden. It says, here's a quote, to work it and to keep it. That's Genesis 2's reiteration of Genesis 1, 28. At the heart of the Christian view of work is the steadfast claim that humans were created for the purpose of work. Now, if you've got a negative view of work, that doesn't jive. But do you see how already, right up at the beginning, we've got to recalculate, recalibrate the way we think about work. Because there's work before sin ever shows up. There's work as the first command of God to humans. Now, here in America, there's different views of work. For example, many of us have a Freudian approach to work. A person, this is when a person tolerates work as they seek fulfillment off the job. This is the working for the weekend escapism of our consumeristic society. We work in order to make a living. And work is good because it makes other things possible. So work is a means to an end. It's the thing we do so we can have stuff. It's all about us, our happiness, our needs, our dreams. I get a paycheck and with the paycheck, I get the pleasures, the beauties, the, the, the finer things of life. I pay my house note. I renovate my kitchen. I put in a garden, whatever it is for you. There are others of us, though, who, who we don't really have that Freudian approach to work. There are others of us, we have more of a Marxist approach to work. This is when you seek fulfillment on the job. We perform, and that gets us recognition from peers and superiors or grades in school. And we're hooked on this stimulation. We're so hooked that we can hardly stop working. We can't think of anything else we'd rather do than work. And retirement is a form of death. And if it wasn't for enforced relaxation like weekends, this kind of person would burn out after only a few years. Now, those are the two primary approaches to work in our culture. You go to work to get fulfilled, or you go to work so that you can do the fulfilling stuff that work gives you money to do. But the Christian view of work is entirely different. The Christian view of work... Like I said earlier, it's that we were made in order to work. Now, granted, this sounds a lot like the Marxist approach where we seek fulfillment on the job. But there is a fundamental difference. And that brings me to number two. The second characteristic of work when we look at work from a Christian perspective is this. The purpose of work, not fulfillment. It is to serve God And to serve neighbor. I've used this analogy many times before. Think of it like my family. All seven of us. We have five kids. In the suburban going on a trip. Very important. That Janelle or Aubrey is driving. Actually that Janelle is driving. (laughs) Sort of bad if Aubrey is driving. Absolutely crazy. If Shelby our six year old is driving. (laughs) Do we want Shelby in the car? Yes. But he's not behind the will. Is fulfillment a part of work? Yes. But put it behind the will and you will crash. 
It belongs in the car, but it's not fundamental. It's not the key. The, the fundamental purpose of work is not that. If you make that the purpose of work, it's like launching a rocket an inch off of its, traje- its true trajectory. By the time you get there, you will be miles away in a totally different place. You will not be working like a Christian. You'll be working like a pagan. If you want to work like a Christian, the fundamental purpose of work is to serve God and others. Now remember, earlier in our service, it's on page 2 in your worship guide, we, we listened to Jesus' concise summary of the most important commandment of God to humans. The most important command a person has ever heard in their life is to love God and love your neighbor. And this morning we're seeing how good work done well is the primary way you love God and your neighbor. Your job is the primary students, not evangelism, not your morality. The primary, now do those belong in the car? Absolutely. But if you go to school for the purpose of evangelism, you're like my six-year-old driving the car. The primary purpose of going to school, the primary purpose of going to work, good work done well, is the primary mechanism God has given you for fulfilling the great commandment to love God. And the second one that's so close, it's just like it, loving your neighbor. Now, let's break this down. First of all, your work is how you serve God. When you read the Bible, in the first two chapters, you see that the creator made this world and he filled it with treasures. He filled it with gifts. Like a a house that is designed well and decorated well. Hidden treasures all over the place. And then at the climactic moment of creation, he makes Adam and Eve and he brings them to the Christmas tree and he just can't wait until they discover the gifts he's given them, the treasures. Now, God placed humans in this world. Why? To receive the gift of his creation. The gifts of this world, to receive them in grateful joy. And yet so many of these gifts are in their latent form, their potential form. Our work is how we steward these gifts, how we open up creation to its flourishing, to its potential. Our work is how we steward this world. And when we do that, when we do good work well, we are fulfilling the most basic commandment That God has given to us. The first commandment in the Bible. The commandment I pointed out earlier. Genesis 1.28. Subdue the earth and have dominion. So when Jesus is identifying the greatest. The most important commandment in the Bible. And he says it's to love God. He's not ignoring the first. He's not rewriting the first. He's contextualizing the first. The way we love God. Is by. Serving him through our work. And our neighbor. So your work is the practical way. That you live out your humanity. And it's the practical way. That you become fully human. The practical way that you love God. 
and serve your neighbor. Good work done well is your daily act of obedience and worship and service to God and neighbor. Now, what about our work as service to our neighbor? Well, remember that single verse of scripture that Josh read. Long walk all the way up to the front. Gets up here. You're ready to settle in for a good long reading. One verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, deep in this verse, we see this. Work is a form of mutual service. That's the assumption of the verse. That work is, a, is, is the way in which we serve each other. Pity the person who goes on mission trips and fails at school. Pity the person who makes all kinds of room in their life for parachurch activity. For Sunday school classes. For going to work. But they're bad at their job. Work is the way we serve one another. Work is a form of mutual service. The habit of thinking about work as fundamentally something you do in order to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine how revolutionary the biblical view is that work is for the gracious service of our neighbor. Work is not merely a means to my own advancement. Work is my contribution to the common good. My work is church work. Gills is engineering. Joetta's is art. Alan and Susanna's are being grandparents right in the midst of this congregation. This is your work. Indy's is making prosthetics. Do you know Indy does that? He's an esthetist. No. What's the first word? Prosthetist, orthotist. Try that one. <laughs> Indy makes um, prosthetics, fake limbs. So Kim says when they were dating, there'd be an arm sticking out. You know, Mark, wouldn't you have had fun with that? The random leg or head. I don't know if he makes fake heads, but anyway. <laughs> so, so here's a good definition of work. And it catches the Christian perspective. This is my favorite definition of work. If you write, write this down. If you write in your Bible, write it there. Your neighbor's Bible. Work is the genuine and gracious service of God and neighbor through the responsible use of your talents and abilities. Work is the genuine and gracious service of God and neighbor through the responsible use of talents, your talents and abilities. All right, so my first point is that we were made for work. And the second point is that the fundamental purpose of work is to serve God and neighbor. Now, the third basic characteristic of work is this. All legitimate work is equal in the sight of God. No hierarchy. Now, some work may be more crucial for the flourishing of a community. That's a different subject. And we have to see those two things separately. Or we get confused on this. Some work might be more crucial for the flourishing of a community. But in the eyes of God, all legitimate work, and there's plenty of illegitimate work, all legitimate work is equal. From the 5th century until the 15th century, Christian Europe said that being a monk or a nun was the noblest form of life. Because to be a monk 
or a nun in a monastery was to dedicate your life to the contemplation of God. But then along came the Protestant Reformation. And it absolutely leveled the vocational playing field. Christianity is for the life of the world. And when your work, when your career is turned toward the world with God behind you, this is in no way inferior to the priest. My job is to turn toward God. See, the Reformation had a lot of bad things it did, but it did some really good things. And this was one of the really good things. It shattered the sacred secular hierarchy when it comes to work. All work, so long as it contributes to the common good, all work possesses an inherent religious dignity, no matter how menial it might look from the outside. Work is the gift God has given us for serving one another, for mutual creative service. All legitimate work matters to God. It's all equal in his eyes. Now, we're not medieval Europe. Very few people, except some who have been perverted by the church, very few people think that religious work matters more than Mark Veerman programming work. What we've done is we've replaced the religious secular hierarchy with a totally different hierarchy. We've said paid work is more important than non-paid work. Take a job like homemaking. When I ask women sometimes, do you work outside the house? It's funny how often a woman will say, you know, I went to college for this, but now I do this. Like, I got to justify it. In a thousand sneaky ways. Here's how I can justify to you, a professional, that I'm also a qualified professional. Because I know when I say I'm a homemaker, somehow that puts me in a lower class. How many of the housewives in this room have you ever faced the question, what do you do? And you've got to somehow bring dignity to it. That's because the tapes playing in the back of our mind operate on a new two-tier system. Even though homemaking demands every single ounce of intelligence, you better go to college. You better get as smart as you can get. You better develop some insane skills because you're gonna t- it's going to take all of the creativity and problem solving. No matter, homemaking is so complex. And so many housewives are utterly failing at it. And the fact is you would be better at another job. Because you haven't risen up to this job. Homemaking is hard. Now, I'm not saying it's the only job for a woman. It's not. And I'm not saying that men can't be the primary homemakers. They can be. Homemaking demands economics, problem solving, being a general in a battle and marching into the midst of fighting and finding. It, 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 it demands all of these insane abilities. But we've got this idea, our plausibility structure connects meaningfulness to the economic system and it messes with us in a thousand ways. Now, we've seen three basic characteristics of work. We're made for work. The purpose of work is to serve God and neighbor and all legitimate work matters equally to God. Oh, let me, let me get another way that homemakers get confused on this issue is when you add a whole lot of volunteer activities to your life. Because laundry is not meaningful enough. 
this plays with us in all kinds of ways. Now, I'm saying, not saying homemakers can't volunteer, but I'm saying if you're volunteering so much that you're failing at your first job, if you would get fired from homemaking in the way that Aaron Cook would fire you if you were being a lawyer for him, you're failing. Show up for work. Do your, your, your work is your primary calling into God's mission. And what is that work? Students, are you better at evangelism than you are at history? You're failing at your mission. you got to work at it. This is what it means to say all work. It means you don't add stuff to being a student so you can feel spiritual. And you don't add stuff to being a homemaker so you can feel spiritual. And, and, you don't, and some people have the opposite problem. You have jobs that make a whole lot of money. And out of a, a guilt over wealth, you add stuff to your life so that you can kind of justify the fact that you're making all this money. Now, I'm not saying you can't volunteer and you can't do all kinds of things. You can, but just be careful of your motives. And if you've got some weird motives at play, sort them out and then carry on. All right. Now, three concrete steps. So we did three characteristics. We're made for work. The purpose of work is to serve God and neighbor. Number three, all legitimate work matters equally to God. Okay. Second part of the sermon. How to work like a human, like a true human. Number one. Learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. You offer yourself to God through the medium of worship. Some of you come from churches that use a different style of worship. And you come into liturgy and it's hard for you. You can't quite get yourself into it. You, you just wish we had an electric guitar. Or like 15 minutes of, of, of highly emotional experiences. Then you could offer yourself to God. That's legitimate. So if you come into us, you've got to learn a different way of doing it. But what I'm saying is you've got to also learn how to offer yourself to God through your work. It's a thing. It's a trick. You've got to learn. You see, in creating us for the purpose of work, God is calling us to himself through our work. He's inviting us into communion with him as co-workers in the vineyard of his creation. God is at work in this world. Shaping it and organizing it and creating and cultivating and forming and ordering. How's he at work in this world? Through you. Through your job. The purpose of our talents and abilities is not fundamentally to get fame and fortune. No, the purpose of our gifts and abilities is to serve God by serving the common good. Your work is the way you respond to God's call to join him in his mission. Does God care about the raising of children? See, I mean, the question just exposes us, doesn't it? Does God care about the order and the beauty of our houses? Well, look at what God has made in this world. Look at his sunsets and his forest. Does he care about order and beauty? Your vocation is your primary mission. Your work is your calling into holy orders. All of us in this room are missionaries. What we're having this morning is a missionary convention. All of us are in holy orders. All of us. Whatever your job, no matter how mundane and unappreciated, if it is legitimate work, then you are a co-worker with God in his healing and maintaining and service to this world. It's so important to learn to see the relationship between the mundane task of your daily job. A lot, most of us, 
A big part of our job is boring. Don't be so lazy that you only do the parts of your job you like. That's laziness. I hate administration. Don't take offense at this. I hate your emails. I mean, in Christian love. But I I know that for me, administration is administry. It's ministry. And for me, I'm not saying I've got to be as good at emails as I am at something else. There's parts of your job you flourish in, right? But you've got to do all the parts of your job to at least the minimum standard so that the whole thing moves along rightly. When there's one part of your job that's an utter catastrophe, that's laziness. Show up for work. Your work is your primary. This is your co-working with God. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be as good at everything, but you've got to reach the minimum level on everything that you don't get fired. So you've got to see the relationship of all these mundane activities. Um, I, I think one of the reasons this is so difficult for us is because we live in a culture that's seduced by the big. I like how the Episcopal priest Robert Farrar Capon puts it. Only miracle is plain. It is the ordinary that groans with the unutterable weight of glory. Unfortunately, we live in an age which is too little impressed by the small and too easily intimidated by the great. Creation is vast in every direction. It is hugely small and it is hugely large. So in order to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work, you've got to know, you've got to really see, really be gripped by how even the mundane matters. And connects up with God and his work in this world. I've told you the story before. But it's been so shaping in my life. I'm going to share it again. When I was working on my dissertation. I was in England doing PhD. And in England your PhD is all research. No classes. So for five years I'm researching 40 hours a week. And if you haven't been to England. I mean other than the weather and the food and the people. It's amazing. Right? (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, in all Christian love to my friends in England. It was so hard, you know, I'm down in my basement. My my PhD is at the intersection of philosophy and the Old Testament. I wrote it on the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, So there were, you know, there's these weeks after weeks after weeks where I'm way deep in the Hebrew text of Ecclesiastes trying to figure out, I don't know if you've ever read Hebrew, but there's dots for vowels above and below. And they go right to left, you know, it'll never last. And so I'm in my basement and I'm working away on this one little, was that dot supposed to be there or not? You know, week after week after week, my basement, it's not totally underground. The top third of it, there's a window so I can see the grayness outside. I've got a little base, you know, England is further north than Nova Scotia. I've got this little oil fueled heater by my side. I'm typing in gloves. I'm freezing. You know how much I wanted to go upstairs and play with Spencer or Sloan? And my supervisor said to me, Aubrey, when you're in your basement and you can't write another page, you need to know the angel of the Lord is over your shoulder and he's saying, go, go. This is your worship. And it got me through. When I got lost in the mundane to remember it connects up. That God is receiving this. As my labor for him and his kingdom. 
Your job is God's invitation for you to join him in his work of caring for this world, of stewarding the resources of this world, of drawing all of creation into the flourishing for what it was made. Number two, learn to work for shalom through your job. Learn to work for shalom through your job. Shalom, it's a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. It draws together the concepts of peace, justice, and delight. Shalom is about flourishing and prospering. To enjoy living rightly before God and enjoy living rightly in God's creation and to enjoy deep relationships with others and even to enjoy life with yourself. That's shalom. Shalom, it's a life of comprehensive flourishing. A life of luxuriant thriving. One theologian puts it this way. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation. In a relationship of justice, beauty, and fulfillment. Now, this passage that Gail read to us, it was a switch up, the Old Testament passage. She read to us Isaiah 28, verses 23 through 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does a farmer just plow over and over and over and over? No. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place? And, and emur as the border? Now, that's common Middle Eastern agricultural wisdom. You know, where this was written several thousand years ago, the people listening to it would have said to all that stuff, yeah, obviously, that's what you did. Now, how does a farmer know this stuff? For that matter, how do I know what and how and when to plant in my backyard garden? Where does a gardener learn how to garden? It's the same in every civilization from other gardeners. From his dad, his granddad, his neighbor. Gardening knowledge is culturally accumulated knowledge. That's the key. So listen to the next sentence in Isaiah 28. The farmer is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. See, Isaiah's making a profound point. He's saying that all true wisdom for how to do any vocation is culturally accumulated, and that is God's teaching. God speaks not only through you having an ecstatic religious experience, God speaks through wisdom, through culturally accumulated wisdom. That is the voice of God. Now, Isaiah keeps going. He says, don't use the same harvest technique on grain that you do on dill. Put your barley in this part of the field. It, it, it's not like there was a massive earthquake and outwalt Thor himself, that was for you, Zeke, in the flesh to lecture the local co-op. No, it's after decades and centuries of farming. God has revealed his wisdom. It has been discerned by paying attention to the job. What Isaiah is saying is that every vocation has a proper way of working. Like a grain in a piece of wood, there is a grain to your vocation. Students, there is a grain to being a student. There's a wise way of being a student. Don't reinvent the wheel. Learn from others how to be a good student. Homemakers, Several issues in America erected an enormous dam. So we stopped listening to culturally accumulated wisdom. 
the 60s when hippies said to their parents, we're not going to learn from you. The feminist movement, lots of great things for it, lots of great things, absolutely prophetic to our culture. But on one issue, it was totally wrong. When the feminist movement said, only if I can work outside of the home am I legitimate, and it stopped learning homemaking skills. Dr. Spock comes along. All sorts of things happened in the 60s. And as a result, we lost centuries of knowledge on homemaking. And so now homemakers, there is an enormous dam between you and God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom and vocation is culturally accumulated knowledge. So you've got to start up from scratch. You've got to read books and go to seminars. You know why we have to do all that for homemaking? Because our grandparents stopped passing it on to our parents. There are huge shifts in our culture that cause that. Now, we can blame everybody we want, but at the end of the day, we live in the, in the desert we live in when it comes to homemaking. And so guess what? We've got to rediscover ancient wisdom. Every vocation has a grain. Your job is to discover it, to work with it, not against it. So part of what this means is you must be very good at your job. You must be good at your work. If God calls you to business, you better be a good businessman. And you know who you learn good business from? Not me. That's not my job. My job is to sound the kingdom note so that Ben can follow the tune of the kingdom and become great in business. You know who you learn good business from? Other businessmen. School. MBA. Lots of issues there. If your job is interior design or finance or art or medicine or education or farming, you've got to master the accumulated knowledge in your field and discern what is of God and what cuts across the grain and get to work for shalom. As a worker, you've got to learn the broken paths. I think the three hardest jobs in our church is Aaron Cook and defense work. Our homemakers and our public school teachers. Something has happened in public school education and teaching that so many, I haven't talked to a teacher in a decade who absolutely loves their work. Now, I'm not saying they're not out there, but something has gotten twisted so that teaching is cutting across the grain. So you know what we need? We need teachers like we need homemakers who will rediscover the ancient paths and teach well. Now, you've got to be wise about this. When we consider what the lone individual can do in regard to a a whole institution, you should be very pessimistic. School teachers, you will not change the, the, the institution. An individual versus an institution, the individual will always lose. You cannot charge hell with a water gun. You cannot change institutions by yourself. The forces at work in an institution or a company are far beyond any individual's sphere of influence. Change requires a group. Positive change can only be brought about in any sphere when like-minded people get together and work together. So Christian school teachers, don't ask me for advice. Find other Christian school teachers. I'll pray for you. I'll sound the kingdom note. But you need a specialized knowledge. 
homemakers, you need to get together and pray for each other and figure out how to decorate a room and how to keep a house clean and how to cook a meal and how to do 1,000 things. Don't ask me because I'm the world's worst multitasker. I could never do your job. It is way beyond my reach. All held you now. Your work is how you participate in the work of God. Learn to work in ways that are oriented to shalom. As a worker, your task is to do justice to what is demanded in the place, in the field, in the sphere of your vocation. This brings us to the third final um, way to work like a true human. Number three, learn to see that your first duty at work is to your work. Work that is not good doesn't serve God and it doesn't serve the community. It only serves mammon. If your job is a legitimate job, then mediocre work is the only form of unchristian work. The only non-Christian work is mediocre work. That's the only non-Christian work. Even if you're the nicest and most selfless cat in the office, even if you're the most moral and pure and holy and kind student in class, if your work is mediocre, you're not a Christian student, you're not a Christian worker. This is the third way to apply a Christian view of work to your day tomorrow. Learn to see that your first duty at work is to your work. Dorothy Sayers, great crime novelist. She wrote a remarkable essay on work. Google it, PDFs online. It's called Why Work? Dorothy Sayers. She has this great illustration. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter has often... She's writing right after World War II. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter... Has often been challenging him. Don't get drunk and disorderly. And in your off time come to church on Sundays. But what the church should be telling the carpenter. Is this. Your very first job. Is to make a good table. By all means go to church. And don't get drunk. But what use is all of that. If at the very center of your life. Your occupation. You're insulting God with bad carpentry. And then with a wonderful understanding of scripture, Sayers writes, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. If they did, could anyone have believed they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth? Morality and evangelism will never, ever compensate for mediocre work. As if that weren't enough, Sayers goes on. In the buildings of our churches, our church buildings, and in the church's art and music and its hymns and prayers and the sermons and the little books of devotion, the church tolerates good intentions and excuses ugly, pretentious, tawdry, twaddling, insincere, and insipid work that is so bad it shocks and horrifies any decent artist. She's obviously... Passionate about this. <laughs> and why? Why? Simply because the church has lost all sense of the fact that the living and eternal truth is expressed in work. Only so far as that work is true to itself, to the standards of its own technique. The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. The church has forgotten that a building must be a good architecture. Before it can be a good church. That a painting must be well painted. Before it can ever be a Christian painting. That work must be good work. Before it can call itself God's work. 
All of this to say, the only Christian work, the only Christian music. Christian music isn't if you've got a certain number of JPMs per minute. You know, Jesus is per minute. That doesn't make a Christian song. There are some songs that are more Christian on Q10, what is it? 101 than on K Love. On this issue. See, if you only evaluate it by content, then you've missed the embodied nature of the Christian life. The only Christian teaching, the only Christian homemaking, the only Christian mothering or lawyering, the only Christian work is good work done well. Now, that's the end. I'll bring it back to the beginning of the sermon. The resurrection of Jesus is the unalterable fact of Easter. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And through the cross and the resurrection, God has defeated evil and opened the door to new creation. And God asks us to respond to this in two ways. Believing it and joining with God. In implementing the victory of the cross. This is what it means to say that our church exists for the glory of God and the good of the city. There are so many things about our city that are good. But there is so much brokenness. There's so many weeds in the garden. And what I'm saying this morning is that the transformation of our city depends upon a change in our understanding of work. As much as it depends upon our holiness. If we are going to exist for the good of the city. We must rediscover a profoundly biblical doctrine of vocation. But we've been too deeply influenced. By the spirit of modern individualism. A spirit which promotes the idea of work as a means of private advancement. Rather than public contribution. And to the extent that our approach to work is, is, is shaped by that. To, the, to that extent we are not joining with God in the Easter triumph. Christianity, salvation is for the life of the world. And the primary way you work that out is through your vocation. Let's pray.